Welcome to Bamsey's Manity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan along with Bamsey's CEO, Peter Evers, and it is time for the most wonderful week of the month, the first week of the month in which we ask the CEO questions. And we got a lot of questions in the Ask CEO at Bamsey.org mailbag today. And we encourage folks to continue to send those questions as the first week in each month, Peter will answer your questions. Peter, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Chris. How are you doing? Good. Before we get to everybody else's questions, let's do mine. No, <laughs> just, I'm serious, though. Uh, in the podcast last week, you talked about the procurement of the uh, Brockton Outpatient and Community Behavioral Health Center. And I was interested in what that what that means, what that process is like. Have you acquired it? What has, where, where are things at? Sure. Um, not quite acquired it, but the state has procured essentially the behavioral health system in, in, in Massachusetts and split it into 20 or so different regions. And Brockton and surrounding towns is one of those regions. The whole idea, Chris, is that um, if you think about delivery of medical services, usually those medical services are streamlined and, and they're all together. And so, you know, you go into an emergency department and you have uh, a cardiac issue, then you go directly to the cardiac cath unit or whatever, made a referral. Behavioral health has traditionally never been like that. It's been um, not really a system of care, but a number of providers providing different um, um, services, and they're not integrated or connected. The state have recognized this, and they're saying, we, we are going to have a fully integrated system in hubs, and one of the hubs, as I just mentioned, is in Brockton, and that's an open procurement, and by that, I mean it's competitive. We are looking to win this particular pro- pro- uh, procurement. The date uh, for it to be submitted is um, May the 6th, so we have a, a month or so to work on it. But it's very exciting. It absolutely transforms all that we're doing in terms of the delivery of service. Uh, but it gives us a really good um, uh, impetus to integrate all those other services. Um, you know, when, when we think about our COPE program and the work we do with HIV and AIDS folks, um, when we think about our Dawn Davis programs where we're um, providing service to elders, it's an opportunity for us to tie all of those things together with a single medical record, with the ability to communicate with other hubs because people move around, they get services in different places. So this is sort of one of those all the marbles um, moments. Um, Massachusetts is doing this. They think it's the right thing. I think it's the right thing. I think it's flawed. I think there's a number of things that we have to work on. But we're busily writing and gathering uh, all of our documents, and, and hopefully we'll be successful. So what does this mean in regard to the Brockton Outpatient Community Behavioral Health Center currently? And does this – will it just be a, an integration? How is it going to play out? Yeah, I mean it, it basically that we, we need to be in Brockton uh, to provide this hub. Uh, so we, we're looking for space to do that. And uh, the clinical systems and services will move into the hub and, uh, and therefore be able to build at a different um, rate, but also be held uh, to a higher standard in terms of the uh, quality measures that we look at people's health outcomes. So I think it's a gain for everybody. It's an investment in a system that is well overdue. Um, and I think we're incredibly well-placed to do this, better than any of our competitive. So I guess what I'm asking is, does the Brockton Outpatient Community Behavioral Health Center already exist, or that's what's going to be created here? 
we're creating it. Uh, it's an it's a new concept. It's not really new, but it's in Massachusetts. It's putting in, into place where it's in one hub, and all of those existing services that we're talking about are connected to that hub. Some of them are going to be in the hub, like our emergency uh, psychiatric services, like our clinic services. Um, and uh, a residential component as well for adults um, who need crisis stabilization. Yep, it's bringing everything together so that um, so that there's connectivity and collaboration. All right, so let's go into the mailbag now. And one question is, what are you doing to make it more attractive to take on additional shifts? Yeah, I think we've um, we've been thinking a lot about this. And by the way, that's a great question, especially when we're in a time when we're really struggling. Um, to to um, to get get staff, and everybody knows that we have a lot of vacancies. So, job number one is to take care as much as we can of the staff who are uh, who are with us. Um, obviously, we've done things like uh, go to a choose your own schedule for folks, so that we can be as flexible as we can, um, and you know, incenting folks. Um, to take uh, to take those shifts is something that we're moving towards, and uh, sort of. Um, planning that out and seeing what that'll cost. And, you know, of course, you know, offering incentives to people is much better, in my opinion, than uh, utilizing agency staffing, which uh, is never as good as the people that we have in the first place. So good question. Um, I would say we have an arsenal of things that we use to try and incent uh, people um, in terms of uh, choosing their own shifts and being as flexible as they can, which, of course, people are looking for these days. We also have a question about vacation and vacation rollover for this year. Are you going to be doing it, and does it also involve a cash out? Yeah, um, again, that this is for, for people who weren't here last year. That's what we did last year. We extended our uh, the time that one could take for vacation to October the 31st, knowing that over those past two years people weren't able to take um, vacation. And there was nowhere to go, of course, with COVID. Uh, and then the other thing is that we um, – allowed folks to cash out a week's worth of uh, vacation up to, I think, um, um, a $1,000 maximum. Um, And we met last week, and we are going to do a version of that. um, And I think early next week we'll be releasing the details of it. But it's not going to be too far away from what we did last year, and it makes sense. I will say one of the things, Chris, is that we can't keep doing that year over year because then the accumulation uh, vacation becomes too difficult. And the other thing is, as an agency, we have, I think, a pretty generous vacation package. And we're always uh, thinking about work-life balance and encouraging people to take as much time as they can. Uh, and of course, over these two years, it's been very difficult for people to do that. But I'd like to, us to get to back to a time where people are actually able to spend time with their families and uh, and take vacation and, um, you know, to avoid burnout for folks. Another question is, will there be longevity raises? Yeah, another great question. And I'm so glad that uh, that we have this now because people uh, have some really good questions. Um, and so if I can take us all back to July the 1st of 2021, um, back then was when we embarked upon what we called then the grand bargain. This was the idea that uh, instead of waiting for ARPA money, that's the money that comes through the through the uh, federal government um, and the CARES Act, uh, also federal government money, we decided that we'd take the risk and we'd increase um, salaries and wages on the on the residential uh, side of the house and nursing. And we did that. Uh, we increased um, those direct care salaries by around about 20% last year. And that was the initial 
huge investment uh, and then we paid stipends out a couple of times along the way um, and when we talked to the union um, something had to give in that in terms of the money that we were spending so we actually put off the longevity raises until November of this year so yes there will be uh, longevity raises and those will happen um, uh, in November of this year instead of I think July when we were going to do it originally. Another question is, what is the long-term plan on stay-at-home working? Yeah, um, that's a great one. And, of course, there's no one answer to that because the work that we do here is so different and depending on the the departments that we're working with. um, Some people have been uh, working from home for the last two years. We are moving to a – a methodology which is more of a hybrid model where people will have to come in some of the week uh, and they will have to stay at home some of the week unless those folks, of course, are direct care personnel or their jobs involve uh, the provision of, of being in, you know, at the programs all the time. Um, so it is a mixed bag. But what we're doing, Chris, is we're moving to a situation where we're not just having hybrid for the sake of it, but what we're what we're attaching to that is in our administrative offices, how do we reduce our footprint? Because it would be the best of both worlds, I suppose, if everybody just kept their offices and they work from home. That's a, that's a waste. So the idea really is to reduce the footprint. And if, if I can, I'll, I'll use the example of uh, 10 and 15 Christie's Drive. Our aim is that we will close that building across the road at 15, um, probably um, between September, October, uh, and move everybody over here. And that's going to be a real change for people. So the office that you're sitting in right now will not be my office. It will be office that can be rented, uh, if you like, by folks. And we have a great system here called Baptition, uh, which every desk and every space in the in the office uh, is labeled and has a number. Mine is seat number 11. Um, and people can go in at the beginning of the work week and book their places, uh, either in the cubicles or if they need uh, uh, conference space or wherever. So it's a change of attitude, really. And it's a much better use of space. And just to let you know, that decision would save us around $200,000 a year. So you will not have your own desk. That's correct. So you're going – everyone will have their own – they'll have to log in and have their own space. Yeah. So we'll be, we'll be moving to docking um, stations. Uh, and so that when we come in with our um, laptops, we can just dock into those stations. Now, there are people um, who do need – their own um, their own stations like payroll for instance mm-hmm. and there's a few other examples that where you know it would be um, imprudent to move around because of confidentiality HIPAA or all of those things but uh, I don't fit into that category so I think you may have submitted this one under an alias it says I want you to know you're doing an amazing job <laughs> does we it say Peter Evers <laughs> maybe they're talking to me I don't know they yeah. all, another person wants to know if uh, if you are the CEO yeah yeah so I guess since I get the emails at ask CEO at bamsey.org they want to know if I'm I don't know um, another one was about service overlap and if you feel that there is an issue with service overlap in the the community and how do those types of issues get solved if multiple organizations are doing similar or the same things? I think that's been an, a non-profit issue in the state of Massachusetts and other places where you and I have worked, New Hampshire, for instance, Chris. Um, um, you know, when you think about the welfare state, as we call it, you know, it sort of grew up out of a British idea, actually, that goes back to 1660. Um, and 
with that, there's been this this partnership with government and and for uh, nonprofit agencies, and you know the result of that is this network of large and small agencies across across America doing great work. Um, some of it's really good because those small agencies are providing specialist bespoke services to um, the LGBT community um, or um, Latina community. And um, over the years, though, there's been a lot of talk about redundancy of spending, I suppose, that, you know, if you're going to have four C- CEOs for four different companies and four CFOs, et cetera, et cetera, we're moving now to a much more um, – sort of larger system when and and we talked a little bit before about the community behavioral health centers that what they're looking to do is have one provider provide more of the services and that avoids the overlap but there is a big caveat for me with that don't lose the diversity of the services that you have from those wonderful providers but as the state sort of leverages size there are going to be some people i think who lose out and i think bamsey is in a really good position not to lose out because of our size Will there be any for-profit entities that are engaged in that bidding process, or just going to be non-profits? No, I don't know. Actually, there could easily be for-profits. Um, um, we uh, we'll see. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there were. And you know, there are in Massachusetts. There were, there are some for-profits who do a pretty good job in in our space. Another question is: How do you set rates? I don't know if they're referring to uh, rates that are charged um, or whether it's pay rates. But how do you set rates? So we don't set rates, obviously. We are subject to the rates that are set on uh, on our behalf. And um, it's a little arcane, but if you go back to 2008, uh, the legislature passed a law which was called Chapter 257. I actually looked up Chapter 256, and that law says you can't rent out your dog. But <laughs> Chapter 257 said that rates had to be set by a non-arbitrary – What would you rent out your dog for? <laughs> That's a pet. You, oh, you want, a pet. You want yeah, my pet for the weekend. For a weekend. But that now, because of Chapter 256, is illegal in this state. Right. <laughs> um, 257, though, said that, 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 that rates had to be set in a way that was fair and equitable, uh, which sounds great. The problem is that, um, in my opinion, because I'm, I'm now editorializing, Chris, um, those rates are set with the Bureau of mm-hmm. Labor Standards, um, and oftentimes they are two years old when they're set. And if you think about how rates for – how um, salaries for nurses, for example, have changed over the last two years, it's woefully inadequate, and those rates are set for two years. So in effect, they're set four years behind by the time you finish that contractual uh, agreement with people. So it's a problem, and we keep pushing back about that, and we're in a bit of a dogfight at the moment over nursing rates because they're far too low. Uh, But again, it is the uh, executive office of uh, health and Human Services and Healthcare Finance who set those rates, um, and then we push back as much as we can. But in the end, it's their decision. And how about wages as well? Where there's obviously a, a formula that goes into determining, you know, what is going to be paid. How do you go about compiling what um, each? individual position is worth when it comes to pay. So that goes back to the budgeting process. We know what we're going to get from the state. The state suggests budget, uh, sorry, wages 
uh, uh, rates, um, and then we can go over those if we want. And obviously, because of the grand bargain, we absolutely did. Um, but then com- competition comes into the market. Then you know, although we're not getting any more money from the state for those contracts, we still have to pay over the odds because we're not going to get. Uh, folks because um, they can always go somewhere else. There's a really nice piece this weekend um, about how Target um, and other agencies, uh, other for-profit um, retail are putting their hourly rates up to $24, $25 an hour. They can do that, but that's contributing to inflation mm-hmm. because whatever you buy at Target is going to be 2 or $3 more. We can't do that. We don't have the ability. We have some flexibility of which we've done. But those wages really are subject to what the market will uh, demand. Um, And, of course, we're dedicated to getting the most that we can for the people that do the amazing work here. Yeah, inflation and looking at the the cause and the effect uh, is is fascinating because so many different things move as a result of inflation. And if you were to – increase wages here, you'd probably be asking for higher rates, which would then increase taxes and or result in cuts in other places. So, you know, the inflationary measures, very often we just kind of define them in regard to gas um, or uh, going out to eat um, if we're fortunate enough to do so. And that um, the, met, the, the overall societal effects of inflation very often are significant but unknown. To the well, public, yeah. I mean, you think about how hard you work. You work for, you know, a dollar or two an hour pay raise, and at the same time, you're paying whatever you're paying for for gas. I think this morning it was four ten or something like that. Um, my daughter in California says it's seven dollars uh, yeah. a gallon out there now. Um, that just wipes out all of the gains that you've had. And of course, with gas and energy prices go up, everything gets passed along and. Um, you know, I don't know where that's going to, you know, we have uh, a lot of geopolitical unrest in the world at the moment, and that's driving that as well. But um, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it's like squeezing a balloon in, in really with the, uh, with the state because, you know, there is an, a set amount of money that we're going to get. It's, about, it's just about how much of that we can, we can get here at BAMSI. Of course, in the for-profit world as well, there's also that revenue piece as well where it's also keeping your revenue – uh, in a particular area, and in doing so, you have to increase costs, uh, products as a result of the cost, and obviously, very uh, a, a complicated scenario in, in making the omelet uh, in those uh, situations. So, uh, in conclusion, um, what do you see as being you know, the most you know, significant of the questions that were you know raised today, and um, what is your sense about you know the future in regard to to wage growth? Um, and where the organization is heading? Well, I think the most significant thing is the questions were, of course, around about um, pay and and how we were um, how we were going about making sure that we're being reasonable um, in the marketplace. And I think those are always good questions. And you know, it's a little bit like that sort of Maslow's hierarchy of need. You know, are we getting enough money to be able to feed families? pay mortgages, pay rent, um, and and car payments and gas. And, and no wonder all of those questions were around how is that adjustment going to happen. And we, we're fighting a battle here um, in order to get uh, contracts that reflect um, a fair wage. And, you know, for years and years, we haven't been able to do that. It, the, the work that BAMSI staff do has been um, not rewarded anywhere near what it should be. 
uh, and that and that battle continues and it's reflected in all of the questions that we had today i'm not surprised about that and wage structure is a huge part of our future here you know we are not an organization that says let's make as much money as we can and bank that in margin we're an organization that says let's make as much money as we can off these contracts so we can plow that back into the labor force and i think we have a pretty good track record over the last year of of doing that and continuing to do that and listening to the to what people are saying to us what is your expectation for you know how this period of inflation which could extend for a while is going to you know affect the questions that come your way in regard to wages because it's not like someone can go and complain about gas prices and they're going to go down or complain about the price of a loaf of bread and it's going to go down uh, they look at their personal lives and say these are my needs these are my wants in order to get to where i need to go i need to make this amount of money and guess what the person that's most accessible to me is my employer yeah, and it's a fair it's a fair question, and we're we're aware of that. You know, somebody somebody told me um, last week that they were in um, market basket, and they, they they regularly would spend about eighty dollars a week on food, and now that's one hundred and thirty dollars. You know, and they're not, and and they're having to make um, decisions about you know what they and I shop at market basket and that's the cheapest place that you that you get food people are making those compromises and cutting back on things it's just it, it's it's horrendous um we we're not um we're listening to that we're listening to that and we're making those adjustments and you know i you know it's it's just a very it's a very difficult s- circumstance and i know that there are economic minds that are working on that uh, certainly releasing um you know excess um uh, gasoline onto the market to try and drive down the price. I think that's working a little bit, um, but there are other levers I think that that, that have been pulled on a federal level, which are um, hopefully going to you know curtail that inflation. But you know, I can I know that people are listening and said, well, that hasn't happened for a year. You know, that it really is around nine percent over year to year from the beginning of last year, which is uh, we haven't seen that since the nineteen eighties. Peter, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Chris. That is BAMSI CEO Peter Evers. I am Chris Ryan. You've been listening to Humanity First. If you want to have your question included in our next Ask the CEO podcast, we encourage you to send your emails to askceo at bamsi.org.